Good morning. Really? Try that again. Good morning. You're awake now. All right. Uh, some of you know me, some of you don't. My name is Cron Gibson. I'm a teaching elder, a pastor in the uh, Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, I've been a, a church planter in the past, and at this point in time, I own and uh, operate a nonprofit Christian counseling ministry. Uh, the passage we're on today relates pretty directly to probably 50% of what I end up spending my time with. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, most of our time will be spent in Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Uh, by way of introduction, you know, um, you know, David picks on New Yorkers. I am a New Yorker. Uh, we do drive differently. You all drive really slowly, and you need to get out of the way faster, and then all of life will be better for those of us who won the War of Northern Aggression. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That just slips out sometimes. Sarcasm's a free gift. Uh, this morning, as we talk about what's in front of us, I'm going to give you a simple outline, if you are a note taker, that we are created for connection, that we live in a culture of destruction, that we must address the heart problem, and that there is a path to freedom. Let me say that to you again. We are created for connection. We live in a culture of destruction. We must address the heart problem. And there is a path to freedom. Let me pray for us, and then I will read this passage, and we will see where the Lord takes us this morning. Father, today I thank you that your word is your word, that it is inspired and inerrant in its originals, that you breathed it out, that we can trust it, that in it you reveal yourself, you teach us what we are to know concerning you, you point out our great need for you, and you call us by your incredible kindness to turn and know Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, this morning the matters we talk about are somewhat weighty, and I am aware that I am a sinful man, and so I ever and always pray, Father, let not my own sinful things, my own brokenness hinder your work and your word. Spirit of God, we acknowledge that you are the guide and the comforter, the counselor. Grant us, we pray, ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to know the greatness and the glory and the kindness of Jesus this morning. Call us to yourself, we pray, O oh great God. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 5.18 is a simple and short verse. It is the seventh of the ten, what we refer to as the great commandments, literally in Hebrew, the ten words. It says, do not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. It is a command, I think, that we pay very little attention to in our culture anymore. You know, I, I probably have somewhere around 10,000 hours sitting in a counseling room face-to-face -face with individuals or couples. Over the years, I've watched Christians justify more and more readily life apart from what God intends. As we become a more and more post-Christian culture, uh, a culture more committed to the idea of our own self-actualization, our own self-satisfaction than anything else, which I will argue actually leaves us to more despair, destruction, and death this morning. In, this, uh, in the Word, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus comments directly on the seventh commandment. Listen to what Jesus has to say about it. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You see, in the Word, God is telling us a few things. On the one hand, we can say that He's telling us what not to do. That's a fair way to say it. I think more we're, we are more helped if we stop and we hear the mercy of God protecting us and telling us, in fact, how to live and how to live in relationship with Him. You see, we are created for connection. In Genesis 2.18, we hear these words. God had looked around everything He had created and He looked at man and He said, it is not good for man to be alone. You see, the need to be connected to others, the neediness of our hearts, the longing for acceptance and connection predates even the fall into sin, the impact of sin on us. We can read in Genesis 2.25, the last verse of Genesis 2, in which we read these words, and the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. So the setting before sin enters is perfect relationship, unhindered intimacy with God. Perfect, unhindered intimacy with each other. A robust honesty and no need to hide even from ourselves. As soon as sin enters, you can hear it in the words of Adam that all three relationships are squelched, crushed. As he says, the woman you gave me. And Eve's not very far behind, and she kind of shrugs and says, serpent made me do it. They lie to God. They lie to each other. They lie to themselves. As soon as sin enters, God's creational intention for that rich connectedness with each other is shattered. You see, men and women, marriage matters. We are created to not be alone. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for alone in Genesis 2, you'd pronounce it in English, bad. Alone, bad. Bad, alone. Not belonging to, not a part of. It is bad to be in that place. We live in a culture that has become fragmented. I have a droid phone in my pocket. I get messages, I can Facebook, I email, I text, I get phone calls. In fact, I have multiple email addresses that dump into it. I have my business email, I have my personal email. We live in a culture inundated with communication, with profound poverty of real intimacy with each other. You see, we are created for face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, relationship with others. We could even think about sex for a moment. We're the only species on the planet that engages in intimacy face to face, eyeball to eyeball. It is what we are created for. And it is a mirror of the very intimacy that God intends for us to know with himself. One of the expressions in the scriptures for worship is before the face of God. We are created for this. The psalmist writes that he is the lifter of our heads. 
When we walk in despair humanly, our eyes tend to go down, our countenance goes down, and the Father comes and He lifts and He says, look at me. And there in that connectedness with God, we are made safe and whole again. A child is terrified in the night. The parent goes into the room and holds them. The child will look for eye contact. Babies come out of the womb, and as soon as their eyes begin to open in those third, fourth, fifth weeks, they seek eye contact with their parents. They look for the eyes. Connection. It's part of creation. It's what you were made for and what I am made for. But over against this or into this comes God as He speaks into our broken world. He says, part of knowing me is living honorably, loving others with a robust fidelity. And this is intended to be a mirror of your relationship with me. But in our culture of destruction, we have learned to call good bad and bad good. Jeremiah chapter 3 Verse 6, Jeremiah wrote, During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. High hill, spreading tree were pagan, non-Christian, non-Judaic worship centers. You see, almost invariably, if you read across your Bible, worship of anything other than the living God takes us into a land of sexual brokenness. Why? Because it is the very heart of what we are made for. A secure, connected, attached intimacy to God, other, and self. Idolatry destroys the very fabric of connectional intentions made by God himself. Well, you might ask, how bad is it? Well, let me give you some ideas about the culture in which you and I live. Today, numbers as high, it depends on whose research you read, the number is as high as 30% of U.S. teenagers are now sexting. That is sending nude photos via email or text, according to a study out of Texas Medical School. Think about that. Ladies, don't be fooled. If you agree to send an image, that image will be electronically stored for posterity. Your body will end up in India or Tokyo somewhere. There is no innocence here. Don't buy it as an expression of affection. It is a destruction of the image of God in you. 87% of emerging adult men report using pornography at some level with approximately one-fifth reporting daily or every other day use. That is three to five times a week. Nearly half, 48.5%, report weekly or more frequent use patterns in 2007. Roughly a third of users are now female. 17% of women indicate a struggle with pornography addiction. 9.4 million women are accessing adult websites each month. Women are far more likely than men to act out once that door opens. 13% of women admit to accessing pornography at work. One in three visitors to pornographic websites are now women. Why talk about that? We have successfully objectified women. And the women in our culture far too often have agreed this is the way life ought to go and are responding in kind. 
The pornography industry has larger revenues than Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix combined. In 2006, worldwide pornography revenues ballooned to $97 billion. The National Coalition for the Protection of Children and Families states that approximately 40 million people in the United States are sexually involved with the Internet. Sex is the number one topic searched on the Internet. 100,000 websites or more offer illegal child pornography. Child pornography alone generates $3 billion plus annually. 90% of 8 to 16-year-olds have viewed porn online, most while doing homework. The average age of first internet exposure to pornography is age 11. The largest consumer of internet pornography is the age group 12 to 17. One in five children ages 10 to 17 has received some form of sexual solicitation over the internet. Three million of the visitors to adult websites in September of 2000 were age 17 or younger. I turn my television on at night and there is I am hard-pressed to find anything on my television that values the fidelity of marriage without defining it in some twisted sexual term. You and I live in a culture of destruction. We accept what we once reject. A USC sociologist, I just, his name just escaped me, identified that the church runs basically 10 years behind the culture. What that means is what we reject today, we'll accept in 10 years, and so on, and so on, and so on. But as bad as that problem is, as invasive and destructive as the advent of the smartphone has been for access to secret lives, it's not really the problem. It's an outcome. I sit in my office and I help men and women with sexual addiction, sexual abuse, affair recoveries. And the sexual part's not actually the problem. It's the violation of relationship that we're created for, the consequential shame in which we hide, the inability or the shattering of our ability to build secure relationships with others in which we learn to believe and know that it is safe to be seen, heard, and known. We mirror the life of our father Adam as we say, I am afraid because I'm naked or exposed, and so I hide. I can read you research in the world of marriage and family therapy, other pieces of research, and everything I read points back to that simple place. We are created to be known. We don't know how to do it. We are afraid of exposure, and so we hide. Sexual brokenness is just one of the most overt illustrations of where that brokenness takes us as a people. Perhaps most scary of all is the numbers are not exact. There are virtually no different coming out of the evangelical church or in the culture today. It's where we live. Into that, Jesus speaks these words. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, the idea in the scriptures is this. The heart 
is the problem. In Romans 13, Paul put it this way, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one command or one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, we cannot engage in sexual brokenness and articulate a valuing love of another at the same time. I used to joke when I did campus ministry, my wife and I spent seven or eight years with um, Campus Crusade for Christ in the Ivy Leagues. Our last four were at Cornell, and I love talking to college students after I have this conversation. You may not want me to ever talk to you again, but you know, it's there. But I remember talking to the guys in my, that I would disciple, and you know, the, where's Ben? You ever had this conversation with a student man, Ben? Ben, how far is too far? Ever been asked that question? Never come up, no. <laughs> William and Mary's students are very different. Um, in other places, you know, I would tell my guys this, hey, you can do anything you want with her as long as you have no lust in your heart while you do it and you're committed to loving her well. Other than that, do whatever you want. You see, I can't do whatever I want if my, if my commitment is to value and love another to lift them up in the integrity of soul and of life and of heart with the beauty of Jesus in which they are made. Ladies, you cannot do with a man or a man with you and have that at the same time. They are incompatible. And our culture says sex will give you satisfaction. Sex out part of, outside of the fidelity of marriage for which we are created will reap you only one thing, destruction. Even simple numbers not related to this. The divorce rate, for example, is not exactly low in our nation. But do you know what's higher among couples that cohabitate together? Because they've already decided there's nothing unique to their relationship. The heart is the problem. So Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at commits it. And so if this were a 12-step meeting, I could grab the pastors and the elders, we could bring them up front, and we could model a safe 12-step group with you together in which we could go around and say, hello, my name is Cron, and I'm an adulterer. Next. Ben, Camper, Ron, any other elders in here? You see, what Jesus is doing here in this text is calling us, church, to a place of a raw honesty before his face. He is speaking to a group of very religious men who by and large have identified they live rightly. And Jesus has even indicated, hey, in regard to a practical kind of righteousness, these guys got it going on. They're hitting the target. Absolutely wrong target. The problem is they don't see how needy for the mercy of God they really are. Quoting a man named Jack Miller, who is with the Lord now, Jesus has come along to them and said, listen, folks, cheer up. You're far worse than you ever imagined. And Jesus himself declares, and I am a savior far greater, far kinder, far mightier, far more gentle, far more loving, far more committed to your well-being than you ever dreamed. You see, the heart problem is right there. C.S. Lewis put it this way. My problem is not that we are satisfied, that, we are, um, that our passions are too strong. It is that we are satisfied with too little. It's a heart problem. The problem is not with desire. I am made to be intimately connected with others. 
And I'm, and I'm not using that just about sex when I say that to you. I am made for robust connection with others. Isolation kills. I shared this last time I was here. I'll use it again now. At the end of World War II, for example, the British had a problem with war orphans. They built beautiful orphanages. These kids had been through a lot, and the British model was stiff upper lip and all that. You know, we don't want to coddle these kids. And so they staffed them with matronly figures. They gave them clean sheets, good beds, good food, good clothes. Within about three years, an epidemic hit all their orphanages. Children began literally to die. They couldn't figure it out. There was no disease, no infection, no nothing. They were dying from broken hearts. They were unknown, not connected, not nurtured, and death followed. That is how we are made men and women. Sex cannot meet that need. Teens, college students, singles, a few thoughts. Let's be honest together for a minute. You live in a challenging environment. I doubt whether it's in a business class or a liberal arts class or human development class. You've had a professor stop in the middle and say, what the wonder of the human body indicates to us is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made with the dignity of God in his, in his image. And in fact, God himself who has chosen to come and dwell within his people and the person of his spirit. You are a temple of his spirit. Live and love and honor others for the glory of God. Anybody at William and Mary ever heard that one out loud in a classroom? No. I never heard that at Cornell either, actually. You see, you are temples of the Spirit of God. Wherever you go, He is with you. And He has come to dwell in you, not so that He can make you somehow straight-laced, sober, and sad, but because He loves you, and because He wants you, and because He has good and kind intention for you, so has Jesus hung on a tree on a cross for your sin. So has the sweet Spirit of God come to indwell all of His people, you, if you know Him. Married. I remember when I got married. I'm 47. I'm 20, I got married when I was 26. I used to have this really naive idea that once I get married, all my struggles with desire and lust will go away. That didn't happen to me. Any married men, did that, did that solve it for you? Mar married women, did your husband seem to get that fixed? Probably not. No. You see, that's who we are. It's part of our DNA, and it's part of where the corruption of the fall has taken us as an outlet. And yet, within that, do you know that 50% of divorces in the United States identify pornography as one of the driving forces of it? Gentlemen, if you think it's not a big deal, you only look every once in a while, you're lying to yourself, to your spouse, and to the Lord your God. Ladies, I know some of you look at it just by the numbers. Same thing goes for you. If you have meetings with members of the opposite sex, does your spouse know? There's a woman on my board who's a good friend of ours. Nonetheless, when I have coffee with her to even to talk about our ministry, my wife will know that I'm having coffee with her when I'm having it and where I'm having it. Gentlemen, when you meet with a woman alone for business purposes or otherwise, does your wife know? If she clicked your browser and pulled down your history, would it be okay? It better be. Ladies, I could say the same to you, but I'm a guy, so I'll push it the guys harder. 
Parents, do you know where your internet browser has been lately? I, my, I have good kids. God's been really gracious. My wife and I parent by antithesis. We go, what did our parents do? That's out. <laughs> Got to be an option over here somewhere. Right? In the mercy of God, I have good children. But I know where every internet browser in my home goes. I know where my kids' phones go. I know, and it's not because I, I sit and I snoop. I ask. I pursue my children. Who are you engaging with? Do you know? You do not live in an innocent culture. The power of sin is alive and well. The enemy of your souls is alive and well. Number one target market for, for pornography is children ages 10 to 17. Do not be deceived. A number of years ago, my daughter is 18. When she was in fifth grade, we lived in upstate New York, and I was helping her with a uh, project at school. She needed uh, images for the food pyramid. I told her that you know chocolate and coffee would satisfy it. It's the boundary group. It crosses every category, and that would be. She didn't feel like her her teacher would be happy. So instead, we had to go on the web and look for pictures. So you know, I'm on the Yahoo search bar. You know, whatever that is. You know, eight years ago, ten years ago, something. And I type in you know, uh, beef, pictures of. Get her some pictures of the meat food group. Then I type in vegetables, pictures of. Then I type in fruit, pictures of. I'm an idiot. I don't know what I just typed in. The first thing that pops on my screen is an image of nude adults in a champagne glass. Fruit, images of. Click. My daughter says, what was that? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> you can, on your phone, there are many places you go that if you sign up for the apps, they track you. I get in, if I use some just news site apps, I'll end up with offers scrolling across the bottom of my smartphone saying pictures of beautiful women within so many miles of your location. And I'm sure it's for noble purposes. It's just so I can know who needs counseling, right? <laughs> Do you hear what I'm saying? God has commanded this for your good and mine. We live in a culture of destruction bent by the power of sin and the work of the enemy to corrupt hearts and souls, to call good bad, and destruction God, and the good God death. Nothing could be more upside down. Matthew 23, 25, and 26, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean too. In a parallel text in Mark chapter 7, Mark wrote this, quoting Jesus, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of, our, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside. And make a man unclean. It's a heart problem. Yes, my culture bombards me. Yes, media bombards me. My heart appreciates it and accepts it and says good is bad. It's a heart problem. So what do we do with this? Okay, Kron, I'm created for connection. I live in a culture of destruction. Okay, I buy it, I have a heart problem. What do I do? There is a way of freedom. It is the way of Christ, men and women. 
you and I need to learn to be honest and address the roots. My problem or your problem is not with desire. It's with desire misapplied. It's with desire misunderstood. My deepest desire is for that robust connection with God, other, and self. And it is inborn in me and inescapable. It is what I long for at a root level. The surface needs scream loud, and their solutions seem immediate and simple. We need to learn, I would suggest, to be honest and say, Spirit of God, help me see that for which I'm truly made. Enable me to see that for which I truly long. Learn to hear it and pursue that which is of great worth. In James 1.13 and following, he wrote, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, but God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when his own evil desire has dragged him away. My surface desire will always drag me away when I pay no attention to the deep longing placed within me for eternity and a certainty of the love of my King and my Savior for me. Look at it this way. I, I'll give you an illustration. I, when I was 18 years old, I was running at night, my third day of college. Sidewalk block had sunk, foot hit it, total joint dislocation. My tibia tore five centimeters out of my joint. So if you're supposed to look like that, mine looked like this. Laid there on the sidewalk in a little suburb outside Cincinnati, screaming at 10 o'clock at night. The life squads were all at my high school's football game. Finally, somebody opens a door, and I start shouting, my name is Karan Gibson. I live two blocks away. Please don't shut your door. So somebody calls the police. It takes a while. I'm laying in the grass strip between the sidewalk and the street. Vivid memories from that night strike me. It took two hours in surgery to put my leg back together a year to really walk. Physical rehabilitation is a great mirror for emotional re or spiritual rehabilitation. It's a journey. But now I'm 47. I've hit a place, I'm, my knee's degenerating, I probably need a new knee. When it swells for whatever reason, I favor it, and then my hip and my back begin to hurt. So let's say that Camper is my local orthopedic surgeon, and I come to see him, hey, Dr. Camper, I'm really struggling. I, my hip and my back are just killing me. We talk for a while, he orders MRIs, off I go, and we, we prescribe this crazy expensive course of action because it's a back problem. Are we going to solve my problem? No, it's a knee problem. You see, when we want to look at this as surface, all we do is medicate the back. We're going to try to fix the back. We're going to get you to quit doing it. Surface obedience rather than the much more complicated problem of heart sanctification. And that's where Jesus wants to meet you men and women, in the matters of the heart. In order to get there, you and I have to work out a word called repentance. It's not a very fashionable word but it's a word that simply describes the movement of my heart in worship. Will I worship the one by whom and for whom I am made? Will I long to know him and see him and hear that this is truly the deepest craving of my soul? Or will I chase the surface things that will only bring the death which I despise? It will always give birth to death. College students, William and Mary is not going to encourage you to walk with the Lord in a deep place. In fact, it's going to be at war with you because it's what the university does today. Don't let the university be your Lord. 
The only one worthy of that is Jesus Christ. The one who knew your deepest need and hung on a tree to meet it. Walk with Jesus. Marrieds, I don't know where you are. The numbers in our culture around addiction and affairs are ridiculous. Jesus is after your heart too. Don't be too ashamed to speak up. Jehovah Rophe is one of his names in the Old Testament. He is the God who heals. He will rescue. He will deliver. I'm not going to tell you it'll be easy, just like rehabbing my knee was a grim journey. Often heart sanctification is a painful and brutal journey, but it's the only one that promises life. I don't want you to be afraid of where our culture is either. I want to describe it as a culture of Christian opportunity. You see, for whatever's broken, it's a redemptive reflection, isn't it? We're made to be connected. The pursuit of these things is simply a comment of how deeply thirsty people are for something to satisfy the most profound longing of their hearts, even if they don't know how to name it yet. You see, my problem as I relate to my neighbors who live this way or these people who live that way isn't that they live this way or they live that way. It's usually my own pride that wants to say somehow I'm better so I don't know how to walk across the street and just have a conversation. It's my own pride that wants to walk across the street and say, you know, y'all should quit that now instead of I'm no different than they are. I wonder if they like to play golf and have a relationship with them and offer them the, the living hope of the real Christ, not a plastic Christ who has no power, who shuns the broken. Men and women, we live in a culture of Christian opportunity. If we will put our pride down and walk into it. On the other side of that, I'm sure many of you are struggling with some of the things I've mentioned. You sit in a place of Christian opportunity. The Lord Jesus sees you. He knows what you really need. It might be frightening to let go of your shame, your insecurity, or your pride. But he promises if you'll let go, he won't. And he will rescue you, for he can do no other. It is who he is. Father, I pray today for my friends here, for myself, will you teach us to live in light of your kind commands. For they are kind. They are protection. They grant us a place of hope. Will you call us to be a people far more honest about our great need for thee? And by your spirit, grant us a courageous power to move against the tide of our hiddenness, of our denial, of our emptiness, of sin itself, that we may know you and shine the living glory of your Son, Father, in a world in need of the only true healer. Christ Jesus. Amen.